Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. Here I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the deeper lessons that can be learned from the outdoors. In this episode, I chat to Harley Rustad. Now, Harley is an author known for the book Big Lonely Doug, which tells the story of the logging of old growth forests on Vancouver Island, in particular one of the, the largest trees on the island that was saved. But his most recent release, which came out earlier this year, is Lost in the Valley of Death, a story of obsession and danger in the Himalayas. It tells the true story of Justin Alexander Shetler's life and pursuit of adventure. But in many ways it reads like an adventure novel, grips you like a work of true crime, and connects you with the protagonist the same way a biography would. Justin Alexander Shetler, the protagonist, was a wilderness survival prodigy turned punk rock frontman, turned successful business leader, turned adventure travel blogger and Instagram influencer before that even became a cliche. If you search up Adventures of Justin, you'll still find his content on Instagram, YouTube, etc. The thing is, in the fall of 2016, Justin went on an adventure, spiritual adventure with an Indian holy man into the foothills of the Himalayas and never returned. His disappearance is still somewhat of a mystery and Harley's book, which was researched and written over a period of the five years after his disappearance, tells the story of Justin's incredible life and the events that led to his disappearance. It's really an incredible book and if that didn't convince you to read it, alone, this conversation definitely will. The reason I wanted to get Harley on this podcast is because his writing presented a number of threads into some of the themes that I really like to explore on this podcast, and I was just dying at the opportunity to pull on these threads, and that's exactly what I got to do in this conversation. The whole premise of this project is that there is something deeply meaningful and transformative about the act of getting outdoors and relating to nature, of consciously taking risks and exploring your edge, of confronting your fear, including your own fear of death. There's an alchemy there that is transformative, whether you're spiritual or not, and can be turned into a practice that is. After reading Lost in the Valley of Death, I felt like Justin's life exemplified the magic of this philosophy, but also acted and acts as a cautionary tale for the risks associated too. And Harley and I go deep on this. We chat about Justin's life, his love of adventure, his search for meaning, the details of that, and ultimately what drove him to taking increasingly high risks in this pursuit. As Harley says so well, summit fever doesn't just apply to mountaineering. The spiritual mountaintop, if you will, that that peak state of the self dissolving to allow you to feel deeply connected to the universe has a degree of magnetism to it. And the feeling that you're close to one of those peak experiences, one of those peak states of consciousness, makes it very tempting to take more and more risk. In some ways, Justin's story is a cautionary tale of the dangers of searching for meaning through adventure, of the magnetism 
of that summit fever, but it's also a lot more than that. Harley talks about just how devoted of a human Justin was and the impact he had on others on his kindness and the way he inspired people and, and so much more. So as you can see, it's a, it's a really juicy conversation. Honestly, one of my favorites. You'll hear that Harley is not just an incredible writer. He's also very good at articulating ideas too. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Harley Rusted. Okay, and we can jump in. So I'm here with Harley Rusted. Harley, welcome to Mountain Whispers. Thanks so much for having me. So um, you recently dropped uh, the book Lost in the Valley of Death. Um, congratulations on that. Um, when did it officially drop? We were talking right before um, about like the process of getting it out. Um, but how long has the release and, and all that jazz around it been going for? So it came out in the US and Canada on January 11th, so right at the beginning of the year. And so it's been out for a few months um, and have have gotten some feedback on it. And it's starting to, it came out in India uh, about a month and a half later, and about a month later, and in the UK around that same time. Um, so it's starting to, uh, it's been nice. It's been a really great uh, few months to get some feedback, uh, not only in reviews, but from some of the people who I interviewed and knew Justin um, quite well. Uh, so it's been, it's been a really, uh, really pleasurable first few months. Yeah, it really had an, an impression on me. And I, I feel like I'm not going to do justice by, by trying to describe it. For, for people who haven't read it yet, could you um, describe the premise of the book? Yeah, so Cole's notes without giving too much away, because uh, there's a lot that I hope people can kind of um, come to on their own as they're reading. But in the summer of 2016, a uh, 35-year-old American backpacker arrived in India for the first time. And he, you know, arrived not like a lot of other travelers and tourists often do, which is to, you know, head to the Taj Mahal or the famous Golden Triangle and, and go to these like really popular sites and, and kind of throw themselves into the, the bustle of cosmopolitan India and, and to really travel around a lot. And, and Justin had this really, uh, uh, direct specific goal in his mind when he arrived in India. And that was in part to buy a Royal Enfield motorcycle and drive into the Himalayas, but to find a very quiet corner of the mountains to spend a lot of time. And he did just that. And he ended up in a place uh, up North in the Himalayas called the Parvati Valley. And he spent essentially his entire trip in India there. Um, uh, and it was a place that has this very fascinating, dark uh, history to it. Uh, this very profound lure for a lot of travelers who want something different from India, something quieter, something calmer, and with a bit more solitude. And But it's also a place that has this very kind of very dark, dark history to it where uh, dozens and dozens of international backpackers uh, and Indian backpackers have vanished without a trace since the early 1990s. And tragically, that's exactly what happened to, to Justin Chetler. Um, he, he arrived in, uh, in that summer and uh, later on in that summer, about two months later, he, he uh, vanished without a trace. 
Well, and what's amazing about the book is it does it is kind of genre crossing in it, in it being like a part memoir, part biography, part true crime, um, and and also a lot of like deeper deeper themes in it, which is what really the the way you explored it is what what drew it to me. Um, I'm curious how did how did Justin you you refer to him as Justin Sheller, right? That was that his birth name. I know he goes by Instagram yeah, Justin Alexander. Right? He was born Justin Alexander Shetler, and. Uh, but later on in life, he kind of dropped his last name for um, for some reasons that he he was struggling with um, through his twenties, and adopted just his his middle name as his as his de facto last name. But and then when he uh, started building up this quite sizable social media following as he began traveling, he he went by uh, Justin Alexander. Sure. Were you? Um, was it after his disappearance? Uh, in, in the valley that he came on your radio. Were you familiar with him before then? I wasn't. Um, this whole story for me uh, really started with with the place before the person. Um, I first traveled to India uh, in my early twenties. You know, just out of university, had no idea what I what what I wanted to do with my life, and went there kind of hoping that it would give me like hundreds and thousands of people before me who had gone there searching for answers. Um, some kind of clarity about my my way forward. And so I went there, kind of randomly bought a essentially a one-year trip there. Um, Canadians could get a one-year visa at that time. And visited almost every single state in the country, uh, largely on my own. And uh, came back with a, you know, at that time, I didn't quite realize it then, but came back with a an idea of what I wanted to pursue, which was to write. Um, it was, it was then when I really started, uh, uh, writing and I went back to India four years later to intern for the, uh, Globe and Mail South Asia correspondent, uh, based in Delhi and then up in Kathmandu for a bit and, and back down in India, uh, and freelancing around the country. And I largely focused on environmental reporting, but I also became really fascinated in tourism in the country and, you know, the kinds of people who are drawn to India and South Asia, uh, the effects that they they encounter when they arrive there, um, and the effects that they have on the country itself, and all those kind of conflicts and tensions around that. Um, so I've been really fascinated with India for a long time, and had spent a couple of years there. And But it was on that first trip that I had heard about the Parvati Valley, and I never went there uh, in 2008, 2009. But I heard about it as this place that was really popular with backpackers, um, you know, had a bit of a, a, you know, complicated history with drugs. It produces some of the best hash in, in the world. And but also has this, as I said, this really kind of tragic history to it with all of these backpackers who had mysteriously disappeared almost one a year uh, going back to the early 90s. And so to kind of fast forward a few years when I when I. Um, with this connection to India, I kept in touch with Indian media and I read the Hindu and the times of India. And I came across this small news article of the latest person to disappear uh, in the Parvati Valley. And of course that fascinated me because I knew the history and I was into these issues, but it very quickly transformed into a much, much bigger, much, much more complicated story that I, I just felt really compelled to try to investigate. And, you know, it, it opened up into something that touched on 
some issues I think are very, very current and very, you know, in some ways to look at his story is this classic telling of a, uh, an adventurer gone wrong that we, we've heard, you know, th- for decades. But it's this very kind of modern update, this very contemporary update on that with the pressures of social media, um, you know, this c- kind of current desire to, to move away from organized or, or structured religion into something much more broad, a spirituality that is much more diverse. And his story, what happened to him in India and his entire life became extremely fascinating for me. And uh, it's been, uh, it's been a, it's been a long journey uh, since, you know, that was Justin disappeared in, in you know, early September, 2016. And, and I first came across this in, in October, 2016, while there were still people on the ground searching for him. And uh, yeah, so it's been, it's been a long kind of personal connection to this, to the story as well. Yeah, and and so you, you touched on on three forces there, and on what made it so compelling that that I'd love to to go into one, being the I guess the 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 search uh, that the adventure gone wrong, um, to how um, I guess the search for meaning can get twisted by the fact that social media and capturing that actually. Um, creates additional force of, of income, but also recognition that can kind of twist the, the, the purpose. And then also moving away from organized religion to kind of almost like pick and choose spirituality. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, to, to, the, to the last point, I think that, you know, there's statistics that, that show that, you know, most of the largest religions in the world are declining in, pop, in numbers and people are starting to, um, exactly, kind of create this, their own personal conglomerate of, of how they see the world and what they believe in. And for some people, that is a higher power, however they want to call it. Uh, and for some people, it is their own expressions of faith. It's their own practices of faith that are taken from Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and Islam and into something that feels deeply personal. And uh, And I think that's something that Justin really struggled with from, from a very young age. He, he, when he was in elementary school in, he was born in Florida uh, and in elementary school, he, you know, was put into Catholic school system for a little bit and never connected with it. But he also was, you know, schooled in Montessori. So he had, and he had these parents, his father who had been to India in the seventies and had this very profound experience there uh, and carried a lot of his, you know, what he was exposed to in India, uh, a lot of those kind of Hindu beliefs and practices into his own life for decades afterwards. And his mother, who followed this quite obscure uh, form of, of religion called Ekankar, um, which, which again is it's, it's an American faith that, that kind of sprung up in the 20th century that uh, does in, in its own way kind of pull a lot of traditions and a lot of thinking from Eastern, uh, uh, Eastern mythology and Eastern religion. And so he was kind of exposed to all of these different uh, expressions of faith and all of these different religions. And by the time he was a teenager, he became, he threw himself into these, these nature schools uh, in training and wilderness awareness and, and, and survivalism that, that also came with its own nature-based philosophy and spirituality. And so for him, you know, he was exposed to a ton of different, 
you know, writings and teachings and, and, and expressions of faith and, and really didn't quite know what to make of it. Didn't quite know how he fit into it. Didn't quite know what he believed in and had moments throughout his life that tested him and tested his belief and turned him away from certain things and brought him back. And you can see that kind of come to fruition when he ultimately ended up in India, you know, this place that for so many people for centuries has been, you know, the mother of all um, beliefs, you know, the mother of all culture and, and to, and so many people who have gone there to try to make sense of what they believe in and have found their guru or their mountaintop and the clouds parted um, and they, they found what they believed in. And so in some ways it's very fitting that his story ended there. Hmm. And you, you see that so well. I, I'm curious, did this, did this all unfold during the, the research process or, or at what point did you see the, the richness of um, when one has so many different spiritual influences or even sources of spiritual richness, it can actually unbound someone in, in, in ways. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for somebody who was brought up under one faith and, and kept that faith for the rest of their life. And it's a conviction that is admirable. I mean, it's, um, it's a kind of singular devotion that is, is quite rare these days. And, but I think for someone like him, you're right. It, it in some ways was a torment. Uh, this, we all kind of want to feel something bigger than us, whether it's Shiva or, or God, or, you know, lowercase or uppercase G or mother nature. Um, we all want to kind of feel like there is some bigger power out there, not necessarily controlling things, but binding things or, or something that we can tap into and connect with, or that helps put meaning into our lives, helps give us a reason to be here as this kind of guiding principle or guiding North star. And when that is so hard to see and so hard to feel, it can be not only overwhelming, but it can be dissatisfying and it can feel like an endless search. And that was very clear in the research that, and, you know, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people who knew Justin um, when he was a little kid, all the way up to, you know, some of the last people to see him alive and his family and close, close friends and former partners and acquaintances on the road. And that was very clear throughout all of these people that I spoke with, that this was something that he deeply wanted to understand was his place in the universe, his place on earth and how he fit into something bigger than himself. But I think it also did torment him. I think it also did um, push him to, to seek for that answer in some of the, in some fairly extreme places that, I won't speak for you, but that I probably would, wouldn't necessarily go to. Um, and, uh, and that was very clear throughout his entire life. Yeah. In fact, let me just see if I can pull up a highlight super quick that I think you, uh, you, you sum that up really, really well. Aroy began to wonder if his old friend was simply trying to live an adventurous and unchanged life or instead was running from something. When you're trying to live out your childhood hero's dreams, there's a point where you're living out somebody else's dreams, even if it's your younger self. Maybe that's not the one, but, I, but there's, a, there's a number of moments where we describe um, 
he he really mythologized the life in in many ways and and he had so there were so many m- mythic influences he had and he was also a prodigy in many ways like very few people can be that successful in say animal tracking and then go like on a tour to japan for a punk rock band like be an exec in a tech company and then and then go traveling he he, he was incredibly talented as well you know he was incredibly talented and and i think above all he was really devoted he he wasn't one of these people who even though he was a bit of a chameleon and he you can tell in those transformations um, of job and of location, he was, they were all a product of something. He was all trying to test that scenario or that life to see if that was going to give him uh, fulfillment and, and full expression. And so even though he did kind of bounce around a lot, he met those things head on and he saw them to their fullest point. And, and so the, the, the wilderness schools, he became you know, this, this protege of, of this like very, very well-known and respected lineage of, of survivalists in, in the U S and was brought to this place called the tracker school in New Jersey, this legendary Academy uh, in the Pine Barrens as kind of, you know, the, the next coming, the next like one to watch essentially. And he, as a, as a teenager was allowed to you know, he taught some courses to younger kids, but he was also allowed to kind of live on the land and dip in and out of classes at will where everyone else was paying thousands of dollars to be there. And, and then when he shifted and moved to San Francisco and, and, and launched into this punk band that was, you know, for a regional band did very, very well. And you can see that he was, he was testing these things. He was trying them. And while they at times may seem kind of at odds with each other, the survivalist in the woods and then the front man of a punk band, you know, touring Japan don't quite seem like the same person. In a lot of ways they are, they were somebody who was really trying to see how they fit in and was swinging this pendulum back and forth from, from solitude to community uh, from independence um, to, to relationship and, you know, from limelight to, to shadow. And that was somebody who didn't know what exactly he wanted. And I think there's something quite relatable in that. There's a lot of people who are going through that in their twenties and thirties that, you know, particularly this generation that is trying to figure out where they fit in and not necessarily following that same path of their, of their parents that worked at the same company for 30 or 40 years. And he was just somebody that saw it to its fullest. And that was a devotion that in learning more about him, I came to really admire and really respect. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, um, I, I'm almost being held up on a, on a, a line you shared about, um, the, the level of risks he took, he, he took, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share of just how, how devoted he was. Um, the, the reason it's sticking with me is because, um, it, it's funny. Part of me is, can can very easily relate to this character, you know, and mm. that I, it's not like this podcast is exploring the transformative potential of, of time outdoors. And, and one of those aspects is consciously taking risks and consciously confronting your fear, which for me has been very transformative um, in, in shaping character. Um, but the shadow side of that is that, um, 
you, you almost have to treat it like a very addictive substance, you know, and you can like very easily take that to the extreme, you know? Uh, and, and part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation was to explore that extreme. Cause I, I, I not necessarily think I, I have the wisdom to know that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, it's really interesting because, you know, I, I grew up on, on the West coast of Canada um, on Salt Spring Island and within a very kind of intimate relationship with nature, I spent the first couple of months kind of uh, in a tent while my parents were building, building our house and grew up, you know, with, you know, very little clothes on, very rarely shoes on and was just like this little kind of, you know, feral kid. And, and so I, you know, even in my own upbringing and my own childhood, and and even to today, I still see so much value in spending time outdoors, not just in the kind of classic ways, but in the, you know, deeper ways of, and the more profound ways of, you know, what can you actually achieve in, in stepping out of what is familiar and what is known and what is comfortable into something that is a little bit more challenging. And, you know, it happens to me all the time. And I feel like this urge welling up in me when, something happens in my life that is frustrating or a problem I need to work through. And my first inclination is to grab my tent and to go and walk it off and think about it. And I think there's a very wonderful part of that. Um, of course. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be outside. It's wonderful to, 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 to see that as a way to, to work through an issue or a problem, but it also has limitations because you can take that too far. That can be an addictive uh, aspect in your life, as you said. And it can also lead to other complicated problems. Separating yourself from your family to, you know, disappear for a week or so is may not be the healthiest thing to do. And, you know, Justin was like that. He was somebody who took that to such an extreme that he would go, you know, far from cell service, not necessarily telling a lot of people. And, you know, sometimes he would post on social media when he's going to pop back up, but sometimes he wouldn't. And, you know, particularly before he, he got in, into social media. And there were times when he would just kind of drop off the face of the earth and, and step back to figure out what he wants to do or take some time to himself. And that can have ramifications um, in the world that is beyond you. And I think that's the thing is that, on the surface, these things are, are ultimately positive and wonderful, but they can also be, they can also have these shadows that follow uh, these desires um, uh, and it can have consequences to the people around you. They can seem, they can be written off as being very selfish and very uh, independently minded and very privileged. But I think what always really, what always really fascinated me with Justin is is not to kind of write him off as someone superficial or somebody who, who was just kind of pushing himself for, for personal reasons that would miss all of these kind of deeper questions that I was very curious about asking all of these deeper connections that I think a lot of people saw in, in, in him and saw in themselves, you know, as, as somebody who was really, really, focused on what he can achieve in the outdoors 
and largely in solitude. And it was something that he was consumed with as a young kid, was honing, was cutting his teeth as a young kid and how to do that, how to survive, how to, you know, build shelters and light fires and, and catch animals and do everything one could need to survive for months. And it was something that he remained fascinated with until his final weeks when he was contacting people about how to do this uh, on a very kind of real long-term level. And of course, for a story that ends in a disappearance, that's a question that hangs over the entire story is how far did this take? How far did this desire uh, start to materialize within him? And did it take him to a place where he realized that what nature, what solitude, what the outdoors could give him was, was always being kind of remade when he rejoined society or he rejoined civilization? And did he ultimately take that final step um, to something that is much, much longer term and much, much deeper? And that only kind of adds to, to the mystery of, of what happened to him. Mm. Who, who was that legendary Canadian survivalist that I think he somewhere near Nelson, he lived in that valley for, for a long, long time? Yeah, his name's um, uh, Mike Spencer Brown, a bound. And he's an author and, and he wrote the book, uh, The World's Most Traveled Man. And I think he visited every country on the planet, um, uh, some obviously multiple times. And Justin connected with him for that reason. He heard that uh, he is very well traveled and had been to some of the similar places Justin had traveled to. And then they started talking about uh, survivalism and Bound had done a lot of these long wilderness stints, you know, 30 days. And I'm talking complete isolation with very, very little supplies um, and, and zero human contact at all, which is very rare to find these days. And he had a lot of experience with this. And he started to notice these very, sp- very curious and specific changes that he would, he would uh, experience after a certain period of time, after 10 days, after uh, 30 days, after 60 days. And Justin was absolutely fascinated by these types of transformations, particularly the ones that happened after months and months, where you're beyond the point of starting to recognize, you know, day and night, and have, you're starting to lose kind of your reference to anything that is that is human created. And And that was one of the last people that Justin spoke with. Um, You know, he had conversations with him when he was in India in the Parvati Valley about to embark on this, this final, ultimately fateful pilgrimage uh, journey up to this holy lake. And it was very curious that Justin at that time was, was asking about a a very, very long, um, deep solo expedition where and one that he may not necessarily come back from yeah what, what was his name in fact i really want to read that the section that you wrote about that transformation that that happens when you, you spend it okay do you want me to read the section yeah specifically about that the changes yeah. that happen over the number of days yeah yeah okay so here's a section um from the book uh that that speaks to this justin was also curious about the kind of transformations he should expect Bound told him to prepare for a transition from camp mode 
in which we are constantly social and connected to a family and a community in a city or a village, to bush mode, a state that can only be found after an extended period of time in solitude in the wilderness. It's an extremely different way to be human, Bowne explains. He told Justin about a pattern he had noticed among people who had done multi-month stints in complete isolation in nature. After After 10 days, time starts to distort. You begin to lose the awareness of what day it is, or exactly how many days have passed since you began. Around 25 days in, you begin to lose the habit of compressing your thoughts into words, and your internal monologue evaporates. You run on intuition. At 40 days, you enter into a kind of dream state in which days and nights blend together. You dream when you're awake, and you're aware of reality when you sleep. At 65 days, Bound told Justin, you begin to become more aware of the natural processes around you. You start to notice the life cycles of birds and animals, and even subtle changes in plants fluctuating by day and night, in cool weather or hot. But the biggest change after two months is that you lose yourself. Your sense of being an individual relating to a community or society fades, and you become just another aspect of the nature that surrounds you. He wanted to go all the way to the dissolving of self after 65 days, Bound recalls. He wanted to experience the whole thing. That was one of my favorite passages. I, um, it's, it's funny. I, I uh, chatted to this character, Jeff Worth, who's like a, a wildlife tracker and, and wilderness photographer. And he, he spoke about like this feeling that you tap into this deeply primal part of the the human condition and i feel like that speaks to it as well and that um 99.9 percent of our species history is that and we've just almost like paved over top of it with language and technology and all that stuff Mm. yeah and i think and i think that's something that justin was obviously fascinated in i mean he spent so much of his childhood you know steeped in a lot of native american traditions and had this curiosity to understand how people lived hundreds of years ago, but also how some communities live today and, and felt like there was so much knowledge about how this world operated uh, by talking with these communities and by, and by, you know, continuing on with these traditions and by learning these techniques. And, you know, part of that, part of that search was to try to figure out, you know, to those lengths, those, those, the degrees to which he, he placed before him in terms of his, his search to understand the world was in part that was, it may not have been, you know, capital G God, but it was something that lay within the intersection of truth and knowledge and experience. And it's something that I, you know, of course, it's kind of very relatable as young kids. We all kind of are really fascinated in, in, you know, living in a bush or living in in the camp or something but it's for somebody to really keep that on throughout their life speaks to another level of, of devotion that I, um, I really admired in him for sure. Yeah. And I, I, I love the language devotion. I appreciate you keep calling that up and, and something that came to mind um, it, slightly earlier is um, it's, it's almost like there's a, a, a polarity or, or a type rope that needs to be walked between say devotion and escapism and that mm. um 
One of the thing, one of the practices I took from from reading the book is is it sit spotting that mm-hmm. um, they talks about, and I, I live right on the edge of Alice Lake Provincial Park, and um, I've always been very much a doer, not really like my my time in nature has been like objective based, like on an adventure, um, and I'm never really taking the time to actually just observe, and um, so I I like to go off trail and uh, the, the park, and and there's a number of like certain spots I have. Um, that I've got a lot from, and and I it really devotional is the the word from it. It's like a place where you can really find stillness, but also like appreciation for the natural mm-hmm. world around you. Yeah, the sit spot was this really interesting technique that he learned uh, at the Wilderness Awareness uh, School in in Washington State, which was an offshoot of the Tracker School, and it was essentially the practice of picking one spot in nature and returning to it day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, again and again to sit, in, not necessarily in a meditative state, but to sit in awareness. So you're, you're noticing the fluctuations of nature. You're noticing which birds are landing, how the leaves are changing, what is sprouting up, the sounds, the smells, everything. And over time, you know, we all kind of have, as you said, those favorite places that we return to again and again for, for whatever reason. But over time, the sit spot gives you this understanding of how this one tiny area uh, changes over time, how it evolves, how seasons affect it. Um, And for some people who return time and time again, and Justin was one of these people, you start to become part of that tiny little area, not as an outsider, not as, you know, a big bumbling human stumbling through, scaring all the birds away. But it's something that, you know, is a slightly closer to an element of nature than humans often are. And so, you know, Justin would go and birds would fly into his hand, you know, something out of the movies and things like that. And he would, and all of these, these young kids who were trained in this and these adults who carried this forward um, would learn a lot from that place and would be able to take that kind of knowledge and understanding and apply it to wherever they were in life. Um, which was to be able to pick up on these really minute fluctuations, uh, not just in nature, but in human interaction. And I spoke with a lot of the, you know, alumni of these schools. And there was something that each one of them had. And it was incredibly fascinating as, as a journalist interviewing them uh, to recognize it and start to pick up on it. You'd think that these kids from these now adults would be, not necessarily socially aware or because they'd spent so much time, you know, throwing themselves into, into nature. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, were pulled out of school to, to attend these, these, these academies, but they had this incredible awareness of language and cue and subtlety that it's hard for me to put my finger on it, but I found it really, really beautiful um, and really fascinating. And it was something, so, you know, you have Justin who, you know, we, you mentioned earlier about social media, but you have like these, these often really conflicting forces uh, that came to fruition later in life. This somebody who is so devoted to things like the sit spot, to being so calm and present and aware and, and on his own. And then you know, this budding social media star that he grew into with tens of thousands of followers on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook. 
you know, following him for his adventures and commenting him and urging him to keep going and, and, you know, giving so much validation, outward external validation for the life that he, he was exploring at that time. There were so many of those things that I found at times were in contention, but that only made who he was ultimately more compelling. And I think more human. He didn't know which one of these, these forces or which one of these expressions truly was him. And yet you can see some of that awareness, some of that self-reflection that he picked up from potentially his sit spot experience gave him that same kind of awareness that a lot of people don't necessarily have on Instagram to see himself as part, a part of something bigger and to really analyze his role in this community um, of people online sharing photos and videos of their lives. And he wasn't necessarily, while he may have been quite good at it, he wasn't necessarily happy with it. And there was a lot of questions and a lot of forces that I found very interesting to, to investigate and to, to uh, include in the book about how much of these forces pushed him, how much of these external forces, how much of this desire that ultimately led him to the Parvati Valley came from birds flying into his hand in a sit spot, you know, in the conifer forest of Washington state, or came from thousands of people saying, you're living this epic life, keep going, keep going, keep going. And the pressure to do something bigger and bigger uh, next time. And it's, those were two forces that were ultimately at odds with each other, but I found were added so much complication to, to his story and, and ultimately to, to the book. Yeah. Because there's the thing I, I, I follow a lot um, of people talking about, um, I guess what you'd call like transformational culture, which is like that kind of weird mix of spirituality, but also personal development. And um, one thing they talk about is the, the uneven forces where uh, just the, the fact that you're good looking immediately gives you a platform and um, it immediately gives you this kind of clout that a guru would have had a long time ago. Um, and, when you think about, um, I, I, I watched this very interesting video. Um, I think his name was by Noah Hagens on, on Earth Day, which kind of provided this like analysis of um, specifically what the, the world is facing right now, but also like how other forces around polarization and social media and, and, and technology are, are kind of getting in the way. And something it, it spoke to is how, uh, we are like, we are literally just primates and, um, and there's a magpie effect of primates. Like we are like hardwired into being drawn towards shiny things, you know? And so it's like very hard to overstate, um, exactly. I feel exactly how powerful these, these forces are and, and what you just articulate well and you articulate well in the book is that Justin was very self-aware of that. And, and most of these social media personalities are not necessarily, you know, or maybe not aware, maybe not even sharing it. And, and it was interesting the way you articulated that, yeah, that, that battle between the two, you know? Yeah. And he was quite early in, in this, 
in this world. You know, this was a time in 2013 when he, he first got onto Instagram and then, you know, 2014, 2015, leading up to the summer of 2016 when he was in India, you know, at a time was totally unregulated on Instagram. Like, you know, you could post anything and there was, uh, you know, get money from any company and not have to disclose it. Like that came uh, a year later, but also like the amount of uh, careers that people are, are having on, on through their social media platform was really kind of just starting to bud at that time. And for him, you know, he didn't know what to make of that. He didn't know whether or not sponsoring what he was doing, having someone pay for that, I mean, a corporate brand, uh, you know, sponsor his accounts and sponsor his travels was completely ruining everything he was trying to do and was completely antithetical to the spirit of what he was trying to achieve and pursue. But it also at times felt like he was kind of on a train that was running away with, away with him, you know, quicker than he, he knew what to do with, you know, his follower account grew exponentially. He was, you know, interviewed by some travel podcasts, he, you know, on, on blogs and, you know, was named like some of the world's most, you know, influential travel uh, or like travelers to watch. And, and I think he didn't really know what to make of it. I think he didn't really know how to harness uh, his following, which now for a lot of travel influencers or fashion influencers or, or sporting influencers or whoever you are, there's kind of a roadmap what to do. And for him, you know, having someone sponsor it didn't feel right. Uh, but he also saw that there was, you know, among all of the kind of complicated, frustrating, inauthentic parts of that world, there's also something really beautiful about it and really inspirational when it can be harnessed in a positive way. And I think Justin was deeply trying to be that person, not somebody who was selling off his adventures for cash uh, and and pushing himself for reasons that he only knew would kind of titillate his followers. But to, you know, but to see that there is so much uh, power and so much uh, possibility to influence people and to inspire people. And you can tell in some of the things he writes and some of the things he says, and a lot of the people that I spoke with, he was really, he really wanted to be uh, an inspiration for people. He really wanted to show that, that you can have a dream and, and see it through. And of course he came from a lot of privilege to be able to do that, but he also worked really hard to be able to, to do that. And you know, unfortunately, tragically, we don't know, obviously, we don't know how sustainable what his, his, his choice of life ended up being. But he, you know, if, if he were alive today, if he, and maybe he is, um, you know, I think that is kind of truth, uh, you know, it's kind of putting, putting a, a point on, on the things that he, he was really trying to achieve. And, and uh, yeah, it's, I, I'm really, it was one of the parts that really fascinated me most about his story was this, this tension between who he was online and who he was in person. Um, it's always not a perfect reflection of our, our own, our own kind of honest self. And, you know, as somebody who was investigating a story and was writing a book about someone's life that presented a lot of challenges. 
um, because people exaggerate and lie and post things at different times. And, and uh, so part of it was trying to wade through all of these complicating factors that social media brings to someone's life to ultimately in a bit, like what Justin was trying to find was to ultimately try to see the truth in, in this story. Uh, you interviewed hundreds of, of, of friends. Phil. I'm, I'm curious, what is the sentiment over uh, where he is today? Like if you had to guess, uh, I feel like we're going to like spoiler alert. We're going to have to, <laughs> but... I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I'm not giving anything away. You know, even in the course of the reporting, I flew down to San Francisco to attend um, a memorial service for him that uh, he lived in San Francisco for six years. And so he had a lot of friends still there. And and I was invited down to uh, by his mom to attend this this um, celebration of life. And that was about two and a half years after Justin had disappeared. And what was so interesting to me is that many people in that circle still felt like he was going to walk around the corner any day now. That if anybody could survive this area, what he went through, it was Justin. And they ultimately believed for a long time, longer than I think, you know, any other friend might because of his history, because of his experience, because of what he was interested in pursuing, that he might still be out there wandering and and finding his time to to return. And I found that deeply, you know, I think I think for some people it it extended the the grieving period, um, but I found it it. Wonderful is not quite the right word, but it. I found it really hopeful. I found there was something that that Justin would love the fact that his story is is continuing on, that people that there is still a bit of mystery and a little bit of a question mark um, at the end of his path, and that people, you know, people are still not necessarily waiting for him to come back but are still kind of wondering about, you know, what happened to him and if he is still out there um, on this, this uh, incredible path that he set before himself. The, the, the last thing I wanted to, um, on that topic, Dento, was um, your, your take on the relationship with the, the Baba at the time. And I think there's a, um, there's a line here of, I wonder if I've got it here. In the valley, this desire compelled Alexander higher. He replaced any form of hesitation with undaunted openness. He papered over any sense of skepticism with blind trust, and he quickly matured any honest curiosity into determined action. Yeah, it, it seemed like, and again, it's hard to tell based on what what he posted, uh, what his relationship with his barber actually was. But it seemed like in the community, the the barber who he was working with wasn't necessarily respected and that perhaps his conviction of uh, wanting to have this journey overthought his, his, his judgments of character around this individual. Yeah. And, and to, to step back, this was a, a man that Justin met in the Parvati Valley who was a, a Hindu sadhu, um, a, 
an ascetic who has devoted his life to this very austere path towards moksha, towards enlightenment. And Justin met uh, one of these sadhus um, while Justin was living in this cave for three weeks, uh, you know, in, in some of the uh, more kind of isolated regions of the Parvati Valley. And quickly they formed this, this relationship where Justin saw uh, the, the sadhu, the Baba, as somebody who could give him uh, a knowledge that Justin long desired. Not necessarily a survival one, but a, a in part one that was tapping into a religious expression in a very, very devoted way that obviously Justin idolized and was curious about but also as somebody who could be his guide to, to uh, on this pilgrimage that the two of them ultimately embarked upon. Um, and that was the trip that Justin uh, never returned from. And what I found interesting in that, in learning about that relationship, how that formed, how that developed, is that for a lot of people who go to India, you see some of these people and they may not be fully authentic. They may not be truly on a spiritual quest. They may be, um, you know, dressing the part and acting the part to, uh, you know, get something from tourists, be it money or photographs that they, that they can charge for. And for a lot of people who go there, you know, you can kind of see through that a little bit but you can also be caught up in it. And I think part of India's history is this, is this notion for a lot of people in, in Europe and North America that you can go to India and find your guru, that there is this person there who can lead you to a higher mountain or a higher state. And sometimes that desire, that influence, and that hope can start to override our kind of more typical skeptical selves. And I think for Justin you know, as you read in that passage, what he wanted more than anything was, was mentorship and trust. When you look at his history, you look at all of these people that he had relationships with, you know, this complicated relationship with his father, his parents were separated when he was quite young, having these relationships with these mentors throughout his life, and some of them not ending always positively you could tell that he was desperate for this kind of relationship in, in, in part a subservient one, but one that he could really learn a lot from. And that is a very powerful force that can be overcoming when you see somebody who there is a power dynamic there and they can offer you something that is beyond your wildest dreams. And over time, as that starts to potentially come to fruition, all of that skepticism can start to fade away. And, you know, I am a fairly cautious person when I travel sometimes. And I wouldn't say I'm a skeptical person, but, you know, I, I'm aware that there are people who are out there who may, um, you know, have nefarious uh, uh, intentions. But I've also had experiences where I've seen that start to, to melt away. And I become sucked into an experience or I get, I get sucked into somebody's spirit, for lack of a better word. And that was that ultimately was something that you can see start to dissipate and start to vanish uh, for Justin in those final months as he became closer and closer to this person 
this guide, this mentor, uh, this person who had devoted his entire life in such a intense way to the pursuit of, of enlightenment, you know, how could that not be seductive? How could that not be for someone like him? How could that not be something that shifts the way you think and starts to, starts to shed your, your, um, your kind of more cautious sensibilities. Absolutely. Cause it, cause the other thing that gets me is, is that there's so often insight or, or development comes on the other side of something really hard or a little bit risky. And I, and I don't know. Um, I've definitely been sucked into the, when you see say a, a synchronicity, a coincidence or an opportunity that maybe has some red flags around it, there's a real tension there of maybe this is a challenge. Maybe this is the initiation to it. I'm curious, have you ever experienced that? Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's so many times and, you know, where it's, where the, the experience is, is like a magnet and you feel yourself, you know, physically or, or metaphorically climbing higher and higher towards something that you can see so clearly in your mind and you want, you want that experience. You want that moment where you are, again, literally or metaphorically standing on top of the mountain and have done things that, you know, were, you know, my mom probably wasn't super happy with me doing. Um, and that probably weren't just like the safest thing to do. And ultimately ended up in situations that, that fortunately were okay for me in the end. But there was, I mean, there was one where, which I found, you know, in some ways kind of haunting in my last month on my first trip to India, I, I had spent a lot of time at different points along the Ganges river. And I ended up in Rishikesh, which is the town where the Beatles uh, famously uh, spent time in, in 1968 and wrote the white album. And so it's been this center of yoga and spirituality for, and kind of counterculture for a long time. And it's about a two day bus ride from the source of the Ganges river. And I thought that, you know, I had been to the terminus of the Ganges river. I'd been to all of these pilgrimage points along the route that it would be fitting to, to hike and trek to the, to the glacial source of the Ganges river. You know, how cool is that? And what was interesting for me is I, when I heard and started learning about Justin's story and what transpired on, on his trek to the source of the glacial source of his own holy river in the Parvati Valley, there were so many parallels to his experience and to mine. I went solo, um, but there was, you know, a day and a half of me walking in the mountains completely on my own, seeing pilgrims and, and, and trekkers pass, pass by me, you know, to reach a place that I had found or I had determined was important for me to do that you know, how cool, what does that even mean, you know, <laughs> to go to the beginning and go to the end, it, it just felt kind of fitting. And I was compelled by something that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And yet I knew that this wasn't, I should have hired somebody to guide me, I should have uh, planned a bit better. You know, I didn't bring enough food. I didn't know how long I was going to be gone for. And so there were these moments and, you know, a lot of moments like that, where I felt compelled by something that was bigger than myself um, for reasons that were hard to articulate and in some ways quite superficial. You know, 
summit fever does not only apply to mountains and mountaineers. It's, it can apply to all sorts of things. It can apply to, you know, walks and pilgrimages and, um, you know, our, our desires to have any kind of, uh, any kind of journey and experience. And there's always pressure in that to achieve, to realize, to be enlightened in however you want to define that. There's always pressure, whether it's coming from outside, coming from, uh, you know, the world around us and coming in from, from ourselves, from our hearts to have that moment. You know, there's disappointment is a very, very pr- profound emotion and people are very scared of disappointment and they're very scared of turning around and, and giving up. And that force can, can push people. It's happened to me. It absolutely happened to Justin on a number of cases to to seek out the extreme of the extreme to see what can be found there and to ignore our, our better judgment, our hesitations, our questions in that search of that higher, that higher state. Yeah. The, the metaphor of the mountaintop is, is so apt. And in that, in the, the, the physical world, the summit fever of taking risks, going past your better judgment, in order to get to the summit um, and, and knowing that that's only half halfway and even perhaps like in, in some cases less than halfway, the, the, the way mm-hmm. down is a lot harder and, and how that can apply to um, spiritual and emotional journeys is, is absolutely true. I, I, um, I think a lot and, and read a lot about um, optimal psychology or flow states or specifically like different states of consciousness and it's a very real phenomena of let's say these specific mountaintops where you're designing these experiences where 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 you reach a peak state of consciousness after it and there is a a real sense of magnetism around it you know Mm -hmm. and um and that's and that's you know it's that's true it is you know for for anybody who has set a goal before them whether it's climbing Everest or running a marathon uh, or just completing, you know, the circumnavigation of, of a lake, there is always a sense of achievement that you, um, an accomplishment when you come back to your, to your tent or you come back to your car or you finish whatever journey you've just gone on. And it, it's, you know, speaking of addiction, it is addictive. It is, it is seductive. It is, you know, it's like this carrot that we dangle in front of ourselves and is dangled in front of ourselves by so many different forces in life. That is, it, it, sometimes it's impossible to ignore. And I've definitely felt at times where, you know, as much exertion as I am putting into my next step, there is something else that is compelling me to keep going. And, you know, mountaineers talk about that, long distance runners talk about that. You know, anybody who does any kind of physical activity over a long distance, you know, pilgrim, pilgrims talk about it um, from a spiritual perspective, that there is something else that is compelling you to, to keep going, even when you're tired, even when you're second guessing, uh, even when you're doubting every single part of your life that, that continues to push you. And it can be, you know, of course, overwhelming it, and it can lead people to to places that of ultimate beauty and 
in some cases, tragically in this case, to to a very kind of dark place and, and a very tragic place. And I, what I find so interesting about all this is that even though people know that there is a chance that this leads to darkness, the light is blinding. That, that, that seduction is so strong that we ignore all of the other things or we push them to the side, or it's about overcoming those questions and that doubt uh, to all in the service of achieving that goal. And it's a very, it's a very compelling and a very um, uh, challenging notion. And uh, yeah, I've, I've absolutely encountered that and struggled with that. And it was very clear to me in, in working on this book that, that this was something that Justin was, was top of mind and was definitely struggling with personally um, up to his, up to his final days. That's so well said. Cause the, the reality is this entire podcast is about exploring that, that thing that we we're just pointing to. And that I, I almost see it as the state of consciousness and insight that you can reach. It's almost like a, a, a wellspring of meaning and, 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 in many ways, I'm exploring how to create a devotional practice around accessing that in a way that one can be of more service, if that mm. makes sense. Um, and I think you've done an incredible job, I mean, in the book, but just in the, the last hour that we spent together of articulating the dangers of that and the, and the um, yeah, how it is a, a blinding light and there's darkness around it. Um, so yeah, I, I really, really appreciate how well you've been able to articulate the space. Well, I'm um, thanks. I, it's yeah, it's been really wonderful to to chat with you about all this, and you know, and with in some ways the book can be read as a cautionary tale, um, but I think that's only half of it. I think there is a lot of inspiration in this one person's life that you know I've I've taken and I've employed in my life and. And uh, so I don't know if it should fully be read as a cautionary tale. There, there's a, a lot of a lot of light and a lot of positivity in, in this one person's life that that I think is absolutely wonderful and applicable and um, and worth considering. Yeah, thank you for calling that because because it, it, yeah, it really is. Uh, he was one hell of a character, you know. Like the the sincerity of him as a human really comes out through a lot of those cases. I, I'm curious, in, in everything we've covered and knowing that this is an exploration of the deeper lessons uh, we learn from the outdoors, um, I'm curious if there's anything else top of mind, either from this book, from your other writing, from your upbringing and relationship with nature, um, that you kind of want to present and, and speak to in the, the last 10 minutes or so? I think one thing that has been a, a little bit of a current um, I'm not sure if it's been occurring through my life, but I think it's been through my work. And I guess the stories that I've really gravitated to are about these kind of small actions that people do in their lives that have big meaning. And I think, you know, Justin's story, while it did have a lot of very big actions and a lot of, you know, big moments, it was the small things that he did and he tried to achieve the very kind of humble, uh, personal, subtle things that he tried to achieve that I really um, obviously wanted to highlight in the book, but also really kind of gravitated to. 
And, you know, my first book was about one person doing a very kind of small action that became a very big thing. Um, in 2011, a, a forest worker, a, a logger named Dennis Cronin was working uh, near Port Renfrew on, on Vancouver Island and came across one of the biggest trees he had ever come across in his 40 years working in the timber industry in BC and flagged it and saved it from being cut down. And my first book traces that story of what this one person unintentionally created by this one small action of wrapping ribbon uh, around a tree uh, to protect it. Somebody who you wouldn't necessarily expect that from. Someone whose entire career was devoted to taking trees down as opposed to leaving them standing. And that's been something that I think is really inspired me is that there's a lot to be said for the small actions that we all make in life and that we all take and we all try to, we all try to pass on and, 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 and potentially inspire other people is that sometimes we don't, aren't necessarily in control of what our actions, what kind of ripples our actions have. And they can be really spectacular sometimes um, as creating some giant beacon of inspiration for a lot of people to either hike to find or to follow in someone's footsteps. And yeah, that's something that I've really, I've really kind of taken to heart. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom in that. I, I think I appreciate you sharing that because it's, it's very easy to uh, get obsessed over like a one big thing or the big project. One, one, mm. one is going after what is my life's work, you know, whereas so often it's the little things that happen in the day to day that can have the most influence on other people. Yeah. And can, and can have the most, you know, if we're, if we're present and if we're listening to them can have the most, um, the most things to say for us. And I think we can sometimes be consumed by that giant mountain or that, uh, you know, huge goal and can miss out on all those little subtle things that we do and, and, all those little ways. And that was so telling to me in working on this book is I, you know, found people who Justin met in some country on some date and spent a weekend with, and they remembered him. They had a a deep connection about, and they didn't do anything grand. They didn't do anything big. They, you know, walked around a city or, or went on a small adventure and he had in part because of his charisma and part because of who he was had a really strong impact in a very kind of small, personal, intimate way on, on thousands and thousands of people around the world. And, you know, for somebody whose story does end in, in tragedy and, and, and darkness and questions, that is a legacy that, that I, that to be proud of. It is for sure. Well, hi, that's a great place to, to leave things off. I uh, really appreciate your time. I've got so much from this, this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's mm. been my, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Mountain Whispers. There's a lot of really, really great content out there, so it means a lot that you made it to the end of this. I highly recommend you check out this book, recently got released on on audiobook too uh, with harley's voice 
and I've included links to that as well as everywhere you can find Harley, Instagram, Twitter, his website, all that jazz if you want to learn more. You know, this conversation has been sitting with me since recording it last week. You know, the vibe of Justin has been present as as with the themes that we kind of explored here. And I, I talk of this project being exploration and, and in ways it feels like that of, of Phaedrus from the book Zenon and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. The same way Phaedrus could feel the existence of quality and, and went on a journey to find and articulate what it is. I feel like there's this juicy wellspring of transformative potential that comes from the practice of adventuring. And I'm trying to presence and put words to it. And this conversation helped our presence at that tiny bit more in ways exactly what it is, but also the volatility of it. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a link of it, share it with a friend. Also do that subscribe and rating thing on your podcast channel. It means a lot. And look out for another episode in two to three weeks. Much love.